All right, here we go. Podcasting time with Dr. Jenna Burton, the most photogenic doctor on the <laughs> yes, internet. You are a horrible, horrible man, James, by the way. Doc talk. We're going to talk strokes. And, and I, I got to say, this is hilarious because we have notes. James and Jenna, crazy singing dog medic. Uh, and that has to do with Dr. Florence. And then I realized, I guess I wrote that. And I'm looking at the notes and I was saying to you, you did great notes. And you go, I didn't do any notes. I'm going, I did great notes. <laughs> I love how you give yourself five out of five. It was, it was, it was five out of five. Yeah, no, it's, we're, we're, it's, it's a little lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're here for what, what actually might be billed as a micro mini podcast. And I'm, I'm really falling into those big time. 12 to 15 minutes, 30 minutes at the max are my newfound loves. So this is, I love doing these. Now, are these your loves because they are better podcasts or are they your loves because they're efficient? Um, so there is a, a manner of efficiency, but I just think that the bite-sized podcast is just easy to get into. You're, you're sitting in a waiting room, you're waiting for something, you got 10, 12, 15 minutes, you've come, come early, you throw it on, it's there, it's fun, it's informative, it's easy to get into, and then you leave. And you don't feel like, oh, I've got to come back, and I've got to do it. No, you, you've done it, and it's succinct. So I, I really no, like it. I agree. YouTube videos between 10, 15 minutes for me. Yeah. Excuse me, that, that's my maximum. Anything else, my attention span just doesn't hold. There we go. So that's it. Let's do this, James. <laughs> so strokes. You know, this is strokes are a crazy thing because – we hear and I've heard the word stroke being used over and over and over again. I've, I've had family members who have had strokes. And I realized that as, we, as I started looking up stuff on strokes and started trying to educate myself a little bit, it's like, I know the word. I don't know anything about strokes. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a very broad area that I think we're undereducated about. I mean, that's sad, James, that you didn't know anything about strokes because we have actually had a podcast on strokes years yeah, ago. I know, I didn't remember back, it. Back, back in the day, way yeah. back in the day. Um, Are you telling so me I could just go and cannibalize it? Is that what you're saying? I could just go back, listen to it, put pieces together, just put the intro and outro on and we're <laughs> done? That's what we said. I, I don't remember what we said. <laughs> I don't remember how good a podcast it was. But um, it's funny because when we think about our health, we think about cancer, yep. we think about heart attacks. Yep. We think about all these things. Depression. And yeah, depression. Well, lots of different things, damaging ourselves, becoming, uh, losing our bone strength. So many different things that we worry about. And yeah, I wouldn't say stroke was maybe top of the list of what people are concerned about. And people don't really understand what it is. Often they have this association of someone having a stroke and then maybe being weak down one side or losing the use of a hand or a leg. And it's what's actually going on in the body. I don't know. How prevalent is it? I don't know. And the funny thing is, is that the way that the heart is affected in heart attack is almost identical to the way the brain is affected really? in one of the main forms of stroke. I didn't yeah, know so that. Yeah, so you think about, yeah, they, James, these notes, did you read them? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so if we think about a heart attack, we have a heart muscle, and we have a blood supply going towards the heart muscle. And in a heart attack, usually you get a blockage. It's a fat blockage and it blocks the arteries. It blocks that blood supply going to supply the heart. Part of the heart will usually die as a result of that because there's no blood supply. It doesn't get oxygen, it doesn't get nutrients. So part of that muscle tissue in the heart dies. 
And then if you think about the brain, again, you've got a blood supply going towards the brain. And very commonly, you will get, um, again, a fat blockage. So um, an atheroma, so a, basically a big chunk of fat, blocks the, um, the, the blood supply, blocks the blood vessel. So then part of the brain can't receive oxygen or nutrients that come with the blood. And therefore, part of that brain will die. And it depends what part of the brain dies. It depends on what will be affected, whether it's your speech, whether it's your understanding, whether it's your personality, whether it's your the ability to use your left arm, your right arm, your left leg, your right leg. Um, and very commonly, if your right part of the brain is affected, it would be the left part of the body. And if your left part of the brain is affected, usually it's the right part of the body that has the disability going forward. That's not every type of stroke. That is what we call an ischemic stroke. And it's sorry, an ischemic stroke. It's a bit of a tongue twister, that one. Yeah, yeah, and and a good and a good spelling word as well. Yeah, it is because the Americans spell it different to the English. Of we, we add an extra A, and often we add in extra A's and quite a lot of medical terminology that the uh, the Americans leave out. Um, but yeah, so that's an ischemic stroke. And ischemia is when you don't have enough oxygen, and it's so it's the lack of blood supply, the lack of oxygen that causes the stroke. But likewise, you can also get a hemorrhagic stroke, which is where you get blood loss. And that is, again, same thing. You're not getting enough blood, but it's because you've actually had a bleed to the brain. So then the blood doesn't reach where it was trying to get to. I, I was very interested to read that ischemic strokes account for most strokes, like 87% are ischemic strokes. And I, I, you know, I thought that was really interesting. And, and, Interesting because as you were talking about blockages and and creating that likeness with the heart, it kind of makes sense because that seems to be our diet and our lifestyles really seem to skew us towards having some of these blockage issues. Yeah, and they can affect a lot of different places. People don't even think about ischemic bowel, which is where you get a blockage to the vessels that are leading towards the bowel, so your intestines. And then from that, again, it will kill a portion of the bowel if you don't replace that blood supply. The thing is with stroke, that's a little bit different to the heart, is that although 87% you say strokes are ischemic, so therefore blockages and lack of oxygen supply, because of lifestyle, because of the buildup of fatty, fatty linings in um, the, the lining of our arteries, if you treat a hemorrhagic, so a stroke that's a result of bleeding in the way that you should, if you, sorry, if you treat a hemorrhagic stroke the way that you would treat an ischemic stroke, the repercussions are pretty much non-reversible. Wow. So if I if try and unblock the ischemia, so if I try and break down that fatty plaque, but I've got a bleeding stroke, what will usually happen is that you end up having an even greater bleed and and usually it will result in death. So you have got to be very, very, very careful about your treatment of stroke and to make sure that you have a, a really, really good indication as to whether this is a bleed or whether it's a blockage. And ti- timing with strokes is really important, isn't it? Well, basically, it's the same again, same as a heart attack. What we want to do is we want to try and reverse that blockage as quickly as possible and try and get the oxygen and the nutrients back to the area that it was destined for. So if that's the heart tissue, if that's the bowel, if that's the the brain. And the quicker you can get somebody in and remove that blockage or give them an antiplatelet, try and break down that fatty tissue that's not just fatty tissue, that's really simple, uh, like simplifying it. It's also got like platelets and lots of other different products that are in there. The sooner you can break that down, the sooner you get the blood going back to where it was meant to be. Mm. And therefore that part of the tissue won't die. 
And even if there is a death of portion of the of the muscle muscle tissue or the brain, you're limiting it as well. So um, the guidelines in the UK, especially, are very strict about 90 minutes trying to get somebody in and trying to get them to theatre because you can take oral medication to break down the blockage. But even better is if we can actually put something that goes through the veins and goes right the way up into the um, into the brain and actually remove the blockage. So I what I when we start looking at hemorrhagic strokes, obviously this is bleeding. I, I found it really interesting in the reading that you've got two types. You've got that broken vessel, and then you've also got a type, subacronoid, I pronounced that wrong, I'm sure, where you've got a hemorrhage much less common happening between the tissue that covers the brain and the brain itself. And I just thought, wow. I mean, talk about complexity if you've got to deal with these things and making sure you're diagnosing the right one. Uh, well, subarachnoid hemorrhage is, is usually quite a straightforward okay. uh, diagnosis just on history. What someone will describe is a really intense headache and that we call it a thunderslap headache. So it feels like someone has just literally hit you straight away um, and it's like a big bang in the head and then like an ongoing headache afterwards. Okay. Um, and, and yet that is, um, it's within the linings of the brain. So you've got the brain and then you have different tissues that, that line it. And that is basically sub, so it's just below the arachnoid matter. And the problem with bleeding is it's not, especially in our brain, it's not just the fact that there's blood loss. It's not just the fact there's lack of oxygen supply. Your brain is a closed bolt. Okay. So it only has so much room. And your brain is very, very delicate tissue, which is why it has a closed bolt all the way around it, unlike other areas where there might be somewhere that you can you can reach your lungs underneath or between the um, intercostal margin, etc. There's there's lots of different ways that you can reach different body parts, but your brain is so, so, so important. Mm. It has a closed, closed skull around it. But the problem with that is if you increase the intracranial pressure is that all the brain matter will eventually get pushed down on. And eventually, if it gets so big, you can cause something called coning, which is where the brain basically gets pushed out through a little tiny gap just around your neck. And, and then that's it, your brain dead because the brain stem that controls breathing, it controls swallowing, et cetera, all mm. of that will get damaged okay. um, and, and you, you cease to be able to function. So it's it's like um, uh, sometimes one of the treatments for a hemorrhage is also to actually create something called a little bear hole where they actually yeah. go into the skull, we, let some of the blood out and take away the pressure. That's that's very common in all these TV shows we see because they got the drill going and it makes lots of noise and it, people cringe. It's beautiful for TV. Is, is that done quite a bit? Uh, it would be if there was risk of a high intracranial okay. pressure. There's other things that you can do. You can give a, an IV substance called mannitol, which will try and basically mop up some of the swelling in the brain um, and try and just take away, alleviate that pressure a little bit. But ultimately, if the cranial vault's just so, so full and we're starting to get the, the brain being squashed, then yeah, it's, it would be something that would be quite common to do. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, they'll even take a portion of the skull away for a time yeah. and then eventually put it back on. Yeah, yeah, seen that too. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard though. It's hard for the, the people as well um, because often they'll have to wear like helmets if, if they're able to walk around. And let's remember these people are really ill, so often they're not. But if they do want to start walking around, they have to wear a big skull cap and that's got a, a mental and a social side associated with it as well until they can put the, the portion of the brain back on. More commonly, it would be a small bear hole. Is, we also hear a lot about something called mini strokes. 
and yeah. people talk about those and you know transient ischemic attacks are are these really popular do they go undiagnosed in, in- they definitely go undiagnosed uh, and also there's a bit of overlap in ah. the symptoms of a TIA so transient ischemic attack is a mini stroke and what a mini stroke means is that there's been a temporary blockage. So there's a blockage that has blocked one of the vessels. And I'm doing that with my hand, just rolling it, because yeah. effectively you've got this plaque and it blocks the artery, but then it's it comes away comes again, up. it's relieved. It's not been um, a permanent blockage. And that's why the symptoms will last for a short time. And then as the blockage m- removes effectively, um, they are able to go about their every day with no ensuing disability problem is once someone's had a TIA there is a chance that that blockage can come back um, and and cause a full-on stroke and the difference between a TIA and a full-on stroke is that after a full-on stroke is usually they will have some the blockage is there permanently unless it's removed medically and if you don't remove that blockage that person will end up with a disability there'll be some form of disability there'll be some form of brain death somewhere within their brain however for somebody that has a TIA is a reversible process naturally Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to have a high alert that something happens. Um, now, I was coming on to a really good point about that, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, it'll come back. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. What's funny, is in the hospital, <laughs> what's funny is that in the hospital, I thought we were getting very serious today with our we're, podcast. We're very serious. Um, you're very serious? A TIA and a migraine often present in quite a similar oh, fashion. Really? You have no idea how severe migraines can be for people. So often people will come in and they'll have lost like maybe their sight in one eye. Maybe they have weakness in one hand and it can literally be anything. But the most common is they'll say I've got weakness somewhere or some visual loss or when they're smiling, their face will droop down so slightly. So it's a motor or a sensory function usually that's affected. And people with migraines will have it for a period of time and it will self-resolve. Likewise, with the TIA, a mini stroke, they have it for a period of time and it self-resolves. So it's only really if we were to get a scan or we ask more about their lifestyle, are they on cholesterol medication, have they had history of heart attacks, things that would suggest that they were more likely to have a TIA than a migraine. So uh, I want to jump back to the TIAs and the fact that they can go undiagnosed. If I had a TIA, transient ischemic attack, what a nice little quiz question. If I had one of these and then it resolved itself, can I do a test for a scan to show where it took place or is it just a mystery? It's usually a little bit of a mystery. You can't always see. Sometimes you can see there's been some injury to the brain and that might be identifiable, but often it will go undiagnosed and it's be on a history alone that we feel like it's likely given your profile, your age, your age, James, your age, your past medical history, your family history, the way that you presented, it's likely that you've had a TIA there um, and let's put you on something, some medication that will make it less likely that it will happen again or become um, a, full, a full-blown stroke. Is, is strokes generally just more wear and tear? The older you get, the more likely you are to have one. Is that... Definitely. You do get young people that get strokes as well. And often these people have an underlying heart condition like atrial fibrillation. What, so, which is? Um, what is that? Yeah, so when your heart beats, it should beat in a fully sync, sorry, succinct manner. I really am giving myself quite a lot of tongue twisters. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know whether it's good. because on the way to school this morning, I was getting my children to, to say, um, I have a proper cup of coffee and a proper cup of coffee pot. So I feel like maybe okay, I'm just it. ready. Do it really quick. Twister. Let's hear it. Let's hear you do it. I have a proper cup of coffee and a proper proper cup of coffee pot. Yeah. Yeah. I have a proper cup of coffee with a proper pot. Ah! <laughs> I have a proper cup of coffee from a proper cup of coffee pot. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... 
normally when the heart beats in a succinct Thanks. manner, um, all the muscles... Can you do the sound? Yeah. Is that what you do? Well, I always say lub-dub. Most of them always say lub-dub. Lub-dub. It's not really a lub-dub, but it sounds a bit like a lub-dub. So it should all beat together and it should be at a, a good pace, something between 60 and 100 beats per minute. And what, what are you at? What are you at today? What's your, what's your resting heart rate? I've no idea, James. Come I've on, not checked it for a while. Don't I'm have, alive. Don't I don't have, have any chest pain. I feel okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's yours? <laughs> I'm just looking to see. Uh, here we go. Maybe I got a resting heart rate. Are you going to be one of these people that's got a really low resting heart rate and they go around bragging about it? 57. That's my resting heart rate. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly what you're doing. We hear you. We see it. We know what's going on. So James is hot. That's because that's because you said that I'm on the, the the lower crest there of being you know needing <laughs> these things and being worried. So I just had to think a risk factor. Yeah, it's a risk factor for um for any sort of cardiovascular type illness. Yeah. So lub dub lub dub heart rate how lub dub lub dub people in atrial fibrillation. When you look at an ECG, you will see that their heart's not beating as it should. Yeah. So the atria fibrillate. So often they're beating so fast that it can actually create like bubbles oh. in the blood supply and that bubble can go up to the brain and that would act as the blockage because the bubble will end up in the, the vasculature of the heart. Um, likewise, if they were to have a little plaque, it'd be more likely to somehow make its way up to the brain. Less likely, that's usually if someone's got a hole in the heart from okay. birth. Is, been... is plaque in that, that's collecting, that's, that's diet, right? That's the prime way that this is happening or no? Age is, Age. Oh, is okay. probably the, the first and foremost. Smoking, uh-huh. diet, uh-huh. and genetics. Oh, okay. Some people have got a family predisposition to accumulating um, atheromas in their in their blood supply. Hmm. So um, yeah, it's it's a mixture of a few things. And the problem with that as well is it can make the the vessels a little bit more stiff. It creates increased blood pressure. It makes it harder to push blood through. Incre- raised blood pressure increases your risk of having a, a bleed on the brain as well. So a hemorrhagic stroke. So they kind of all are a little bit interlinked. And as we discussed with everything, it all comes back to a lifestyle issue. These these big lifestyle problems and medical conditions that occur you know they they often come back to a genetic component but a huge lifestyle component as well and we should be really mindful of that yeah moderate uh, if somebody lifestyle. feels like they're having a stroke pardon james moderate lifestyle just be moderate you know don't overdo moderate. stuff live in the middle the golden mean yeah. aristotle <laughs> i mean if you could be the healthiest person in the world that'd be fantastic but you know if you if you live like that the chances are it's going to be unsustainable so often what will happen is people might have a TIA, for instance, it scares them and they go into this radical, radical lifestyle change. And that's great. Their friends, you know, they commendate them. They say, well done, you know, look at you. You've lost all that weight. You stop smoking. You drink a lot less. Great. But it's for how long that they can keep that up. Whereas if they said, okay, I'm going to eat really healthily throughout the day, give myself a small sweet treat before I go to bed. I'm going to exercise four times a week. Um, just for an hour, whatever. I'm going to walk a little bit more. You know, th- these are things that are sustainable. Mm. But so it's just trying to find that healthy balance for you and and that fits with your lifestyle too. Um, but I do think that you know we must talk about what do you do if you yeah. if you feel like you're having a stroke. And the most common thing that people will say is that somewhere in their body becomes weak. So it could be they can't quite use their thumb properly. It could even be something really simple like their fingers not lifting up as much as as normal 
they feel like they can't smile or someone notices they can't smile. They might not be able to lift their eyebrows properly or open their eyes. They, um, so what we're looking down to is a motor problem or a sensory problem usually. So the sensory problem could be that their hand feels a bit numb or their arm feels a bit numb. And they might think that they're really overreacting. Like, yeah. you know, it's so weird, but my, I just don't really feel like I can feel the skin properly on my right arm. Um, but I feel fine otherwise. So what should I do? Do I go to hospital? I would say, yeah, <laughs> come get that checked out. Um, I remember receiving a phone call from my dad and he was sat with my grandma. He's very elderly. And he said, I'm just here with your grandma, Jenna, but don't worry, she's fine. I was like, oh, okay, say hi. He said, it's the funniest thing, you know, but she can't speak. And I said, what, Dad? He said, she can't, she can't say anything, she, but don't worry, she knows what she wants to say. She just can't say it. I was like, Dad. Dude, alarm bells are going up. <laughs> I, I said, I think she's having a stroke, Dad. And he went, right, okay, I'll finish my cup of tea and I'll take it to the hospital. <laughs> and I was like, put your cup of tea down take to the hospital now because obviously with a stroke when things present it's time sensitive because you yeah. want to be able to reverse the problem anyway went to the hospital she'd had a stroke and it turns out she probably had it maybe the day before but because she'd not gone to speak she didn't even know she couldn't speak right and um, so it can be something really quite small but usually motor or sensory usually okay and so then get treatment right away get to the, the health professionals so that they can start to do something to hopefully repair, reverse, stop the the process. Yeah, if it's quite a severe disability, so somebody is failing to walk or their left entire left side is is not being used, they literally can't lift their arms or their legs. You know, you don't you don't go to a clinic for these things, you go straight to the A&E department and don't be afraid to call an ambulance either because these things can be life-threatening as well. Um with a stroke, usually the, the normal history is that somebody will then result with an ongoing summer level of disability. The quicker they get treated, the less likely that's the case. But, you know, this could be a hemorrhagic stroke, and they tend to be a little bit more life-threatening, um, but it, both can be, sadly. I, I was looking through a checklist of things, again, that, you know, just what can we be doing to help with our lifestyles and, you know, to maybe make less of a chance of us getting a stroke, you know, monitor blood pressure, control cholesterol, keep an eye on blood sugar, get active, eat better, maybe lose some weight, don't smoke ever, we should never do that. And then the last one on this list, and this list is coming from the American Heart Association, and the last one on the list, talk to your doctor about aspirin or other medications. When we yeah. aspirin's a big one that people talk about ASA uh, is is that still something to mm-hmm. consider? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it on your own accord. I would speak to your your general practitioner or your cardiologist or whoever it may be that you're interacting with about it. <clears throat> so don't just take it on on your own. The reason is is that aspirin can irritate the lining of the stomach, so that can come with its own set of risks. Uh, however, an awful lot of people do really well with a, a, an aspirin a day. It's like an apple a day, but as you get older, it's an aspirin a day, keeps the doctor away. And the reason is, is that the aspirin is antiplatelet. So it it reduces the platelets. So if you do have a blockage, the chance of the platelets all coming around them and making that blockage a little bit worse is reduced. Uh, It can increase your risk of bleeding, but only very slightly with something like aspirin. But again, if you are on aspirin, you'd have to declare that if you were due for a surgical procedure or an invasive procedure of some kind, it can make you bruise a little bit more, as I say, also affects the lining of the stomach. 
I, a lot of I, people are on aspirin over the age of 50, a lot of them. And the more risk factors you have, the more likely to be on it. If you've ever had a TIA or a stroke or a heart attack, the chances are that person will already be on an aspirin. So I guess the, the, the moral of the whole story is you go for regular checkups and talk to a GP and if, you know have a GP, hopefully, and have that conversation and just be cognizant of this is out there. And the older you get, something to keep an eye on. Yet another thing to keep an eye on. Yes. And the other thing, because we often have a tendency now to be more medically aware, people are more educated about their health. It's quite well known if someone believes that they're having a heart attack, they might reach for an aspirin to like reduce the chances of that being a blockage that ensues and, and damages the heart anyway. I'm just saying this because some people know a little bit and so they feel like I can treat this at home before I get to the hospital. Uh, yeah. You must never, ever do that with a stroke. If you believe you're having a stroke, please do not take an aspirin at home because I would never give a patient or a family member an aspirin if I thought they were having a stroke because I'd want to be very sure. And that means usually CT scan, quickly run th- someone through a very, very, very quick CT scanner to be sure that that's not a bleed on the brain as opposed to an ischemic stroke. Mm. So so don't self-diagnose at home. It, have the intuition to know I need to go to a medical facility, um, but then let them look after it. And say you can say, I think I might be having a stroke. And the chances are they'll whiz someone through a CT scanner very quickly if they think so too. I, I love when I was looking up different types of stroke. There's the stroke of unknown cause, the cryptogenic stroke. And I thought, what a great name. And then that's, it's sort of Everything's like. crypto these days, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of get out of. Yeah, it's the get out of jail stroke. It's like, we don't know why that stroke got caused, but it's out there. You know, there's a word, I can't remember what it is. It's not idiopathic because that's what doctors do. So we'll say there's idiopathic reason. And that's usually we've caused it somehow. But there's another word I can't remember. But it, again, it's our get out of jail free card. Next podcast, I'll, I'll remember the word and we'll say it's, and it sounds really great to the patient, but it means that we haven't got a clue what's going on here. Yeah. So, uh, parting words, your final thoughts on strokes, Jenna? Moderate lifestyle. And if you even have a hunch, even if it feels really small and you feel like you're overreacting, then, you know, you can either pick up the phone to 111 if it's very small and you feel okay, but usually I'd be saying go down to A&E. There we go. And that's ED for you, Canadians, yeah. emergency department. <laughs> there we go. Jenna, thank you very much. Strokes. Thanks, we've, we've given people the Cliff's notes, the Cole's notes on strokes. What a, what a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Look forward to doing it again thank real soon, you. Jenna. You too. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Doc Talk podcast with Dr. Jenna Burton. We'll do it all again really, really soon. Thanks for listening. So long for now. Take care.